you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. Such a sweet gift that we have all those little voices. I kept hearing them during the announcements and think, Lord, what a sweet thing we have all these little voices in our room worshiping with us. This morning I'm preaching the 14th and final message in our series that we've entitled Living in Hope. Walking through the book of 1 Peter, looking at Peter's call to those who live in a culture that would reject them. A culture that would reject their worldview and ultimately reject their God. And Peter reminds us in this context of rejection that our hope is alive. And that as we've walked through the book of 1 Peter, we've seen that our hope is alive, our God is alive, and our hope is not in our acceptance, it's not in our comfort, it's not in our religiousness, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Jesus who died for our sins. Our hope is in Jesus who on the third day rose again and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Our hope is in Jesus who will come again. That He is our hope. So Peter has charged us through this book to live in hope. To live fully in the Gospel. And to fully live out the Gospel despite shame or rejection or suffering. And as we've walked through this book, we've painted lots of pictures of suffering. Whether it comes through persecution or life events, we are all called to suffer. And when we walk through that, as we've seen in this book, suffering, particularly when the world watches us suffer, gives us the opportunity to testify to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in any and all situations. That we can say Christ is enough. That He is enough. That He is more than sufficient for my need. So this morning as we walk into this fifth chapter, Peter is going to give us some final words of exhortation. So as we walk into it, I want to pick up on some of the themes that he's been writing. Because it's going to be really important for us to get the fifth chapter, that we understand that there were four chapters that came before it, because it'll help us keep it all together. So let me give you a quick recap, as I often like to do. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God, Peter writes, that according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are born again, Peter writes, by believing in Jesus Christ. We walked back into John 3 to see that 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 phrase born again simply means that you have believed in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that his death was sufficient to pay the full price for your sin, and that by believing in him, you're born again into a living hope. You're given a, a new life and a new hope because of the resurrection. Friends, we should live like Jesus rose again. And that's a sweet calling for us. In 1 Peter 1.13, he writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he puts it for us that our hope is in the grace that we will receive when Christ returns. That is our hope. 
And so we put our hope fully, rested completely on that. As he continued in the second chapter, he called us into the Word, into his Bible, and into community. There are a few letters that call you into community quite like this one. This first Peter where he's constantly calling you to be a part of a fellowship. It actually, because you get to this point where you see that a Christian cannot live a life alone outside of the church. It just doesn't function well, and we'll see more of that in today's passage. But it's this reminder we can't do it on our own. First Peter 2, 11-12 here writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, a theme he comes to often, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your ton- conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good do- deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And he starts painting a different picture of suffering, doesn't he? That you'd live a life amongst people that even though they might cause you to suffer, speak bad against you, that God would be exalted. So he calls us to walk away from the passions of our flesh and to reflect Jesus to the world, a theme that he continues to pick up and drive further. And in the second and third chapter, he calls us to a challenging perspective on submission. Why? That we would reflect Jesus Christ even in the most challenging of circumstances. And he paints that picture for us in in society and work and even in marriage. That we would value reflecting Jesus Christ primarily in all of those situations. Whether they're believing or unbelieving. He puts the picture that we submit to Jesus Christ and put Him first and foremost. Summarizing it in 1 Peter 3, 8-9. through 9, Saying, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. He calls us that we would love people, that we would give, put out Jesus rather than evil. He, he paints that picture that when we suffer, that be Jesus that comes out of us. And he reminds us as he continues in this letter that Jesus didn't just call us to this, he led us into it. Because we're saved by the death of Christ on the cross. And then we're called to pick up the cross and carry it ourselves. With Christ as our example in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. But alive in the spirit. And when we walked into the fourth chapter he wrote this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You, you see it over and over and over again. This, we will suffer. We will struggle. Prepare yourself. Set your mind on this. You will suffer. Live for God. Over and over this theme plays out. First Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at this fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He puts it out, it will happen to all of us. We will all suffer, we will all struggle, 
And then verse 19, he brings it to a climax in 1 Peter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And thematically, this becomes the verse that carries the book. That there's a calling that we will all suffer and that we appreciate that our suffering comes from God and that it's part of God's will for our life. Hard though that is to hear, he has a desire to use it for his good. That God would allow these things to happen to us so that in those times, in those moments, we'd entrust our soul to him. That we'd live out the fact, regardless of what might be happening to us, that Jesus Christ is enough, that he is sufficient, and that we'd entrust ourselves fully to God, which is a hard calling. And so as he comes into this fifth chapter, this reality of suffering, this theology of suffering, of trials and challenges, has been painted for us. Because as we've alluded several times, you're on your, either on your way on the path towards suffering or away from it, or you could be in the middle of it, but we'll all suffer at some point for any number of reasons. So he talks to all of us. So in 1 Peter 5, with that as our backdrop, we stop and we step into this text. 1 Peter 5, 1 says, So I exhort the elders amongst you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed. And when Peter writes elders in this verse, he's not talking about old people. He's using a specific word here, Greek word, presbuteros, which refers to the biblical office of an elder or an overseer. You find these words used interchangeably in the New Testament. But it refers to the men that God calls to lead the church. You find this discussed in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, among some other passages. And at Calvary, we practice eldership. We have nine men in this church, including myself, who have been called and serve as elders in this church. It's a group like this that Peter gives this exhortation to. It's a group like this he's about to speak to. So to make this more plain to you, more helpful perhaps, if you're an elder and you happen to be here, would you stand for me? I know I've got a couple of them. i got five. Lenny, Kip, Kip's missing. He was helping somewhere inevitably. Um, Herb, Mark, Steve, Ron, Austin, and Kent. These are the elders of the church. Now, why this is helpful for you, you guys stand for just another second. See, because normally when we walk through the Bible and we look at passages, you're exhorted not to think about it in terms of other people, but to think about it in terms of you. Well, as we walk into this exhortation, you don't apply it to you, you apply it to them. See, this is where you get the pass. You get off on this one. You know, they apply it. You guys can sit. Peter gives this exhortation in verse 2 to elders in the church. And this is what he says. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples in the flock. What Peter writes, in lieu of suffering, to a group of elders in the church, he says, guys, shepherd the flock. Watch over the sheep. And there's nobody, I promise you, nobody who had a better view of this than Peter. You may remember that Peter denied Jesus three times. I didn't know that man. I don't know that man. I don't know that man. And when Jesus was resurrected, he restored Peter three times. You may remember this story. Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what was Jesus' response? Feed my sheep. What Jesus gave Peter as a response to his repentance to sin, to his reconciliation back to him, was feed my sheep. Take care of my flock. See, this was a charge that Peter knew well because Jesus thrust it upon him. Feed my sheep. And so you start to see this paradigm set up. Jesus says to Peter, as a result of you sinning, of you blowing it, my death and my resurrection are sufficient that I want you to be a shepherd to take care of my sheep. And you see the pattern. We had five guys standing in this room myself, six, three missing. These are not perfect guys. I can attest to you that they're not perfect men. And yet, like Peter, they're redeemed and forgiven because they've entrusted in Jesus Christ fully to cover all of their sin. And God has been gracious to call them and gift them to be elders of a church and charge them to watch over the flock. Peter says, watch over the sheep. Not because you're compelled to, but because God has called you to. Do it to be faithful. He includes these other words. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. See, there are people in the culture, even in our culture and that culture, who would want to be an elder for all the wrong reasons who would even seek to be paid to be an elder. And there's a good argument, by the way, for paying elders. You can find it in the Bible. We can get to that some other day. But the argument here is that you wouldn't do it for shameful gain, but you do it to honor the Lord. Not domineering over your sheep, but being an example before them. Now keep all of this in mind that when Peter's writing to these elders, it's all in the context of suffering so peter calls the elders to be an example in suffering guys you're going to suffer and you're called in the bible to suffer well why because the church is going to watch it happen the church is going to watch it happen be an example and suffer well peter charges these elders to be an example and to watch over the sheep why because they're going to suffer. All of us will at one time or another. 
And so God sees to it that we have men in our lives who are watching over us to protect us for His good. In verse 4, Peter writes this, And when the chief shepherd appears, because we're not Jesus. When the chief shepherd appears, because Jesus is coming back, he says this to elders, You will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know what that says? God intends to hold them accountable. God absolutely intends to hold elders accountable. You can find this other places in Scripture. But in here, having served faithfully, God says, I'm going to give you an unfading crown of glory that your opportunity to be faithful to God glorifies the King and and God honors that. So if you're an elder, this is a high calling and a strong exhortation. And if you're not an elder, which frankly is most of you, I want you to consider what he's writing here to the church. Because Peter's writing in the context of suffering, a charge to elders, which assumes that you're involved in community. And in fact, it assumes you're involved in an organized community because you'd have to be in an organized community, which the New Testament calls a church in order for you to have elders. It assumes all of this. Now where this becomes strong for us is because we live in a time and a culture where people assume, I can follow Christ, I can do it on my own, I don't need a church, I don't need people. Friends, the New Testament decries that that's a false belief. This whole letter is writing to you, written to you in this culture, this context, that you're going to suffer and you need a community. It's written that you need a community and that God has provided men to watch over that community. Peter's about to write and call you a tasty gazelle because Satan's going to devour you because you need a community. You, you cannot follow this. You cannot heed these exhortations if you're not part of the herd. I'm going to choose herd as my analogy for the bison among us. So Peter continues on to the non-elders. He writes, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he charges the elders and then writes, basically everyone else. Now depending on the version you have, it may say those who are younger. It might even say younger men, but I'd tell you that the verse that says younger men, the words that are used here apply to both sexes. Now, this isn't a gender-neutral term, I'll have you know. The Bible is pretty clear about gender and all of its ramifications. But there are times when it is written where a male term is used that's gender-inclusive. That doesn't mean we all get to use whatever bathroom we want. But it does mean when it says to the, the people amongst you, a male term is used grammatically, that means everybody. This is why you'll find that some of you have gone off to college and you thought you were joining a sorority, you ended up in a fraternity, and you didn't understand that. That's all grammar. I don't know why either. He writes, to those of you who are younger, be subject to the elders. What he, he writes is that everyone, by context, and you know that based on the entirety of the New Testament teachings about the church, that everyone would be subject to the elders. That you'd submit yourself to them. We walked through this in Ephesians. We touched back on it 
in 1 Peter that there are ways and lines of submission in the Bible. One of them is to the elders in the church. So let's bring some clarity to that. He continues in verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Not to elders, to everyone. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And there are several things that get said here, but keep the picture there in front of you. Your hope is then the grace that you'll receive when he comes back. It's, it's put before you. So at the proper time he may exalt you, he, he's coming back. But until that time, Peter writes, put on humility towards one another. Be humble towards one another. Put each other first. By the way, that is a communal teaching. You cannot put others first when you live by yourself. When you make your world all about me. Because the very nature of meism is self-exaltation. It's about me. It's about what I want. It's about me getting what I want. Whereas the church calls us that we would gather together and put each other first. We'd humble ourselves. And again, this is all in the context of suffering. And he adds to it in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, friends, we're a church, and we absolutely believe in God's Word, do we not? That there's a literal word here that tells you that Satan is like a lion looking for someone to devour. Do we believe that? Yes. Satan is on the move, literally, looking for people to devour, literally. Don't be a tasty gazelle. Don't make yourself easy to pick off. You're not sure what this looks like? Watch Animal Planet today or National Geographic. You'll see that the gazelles that wander off get picked off. If they wander, they stray from community, they become easy prey. This is all in the context of suffering that that Satan is prowling and roaring and devouring. Verse 9, it says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And friends, I could have brought you a list of places this week where people were martyred for our faith. I could have brought you a list of places where people were tortured for our faith. It's happening everywhere. Suffering exists everywhere. About a year and a half ago, I had the chance to do the funeral of a good friend of mine who was a Sudanese college student. He, he was immediately diagnosed with a stage four stomach cancer, and it took his life in about six months. One of the most fascinating things about walking with Yusuf and his dad Ishmael in this process was watching a Sudanese pastor, his father, walk through his son's death. You know, one of the fascinating thing about that was that Sudanese expect death for everyone. And what became 
impeccably clear through that process is that death is a part of their culture. They're used to it. And as several of us met with his dad or through that experience, you started to see how much Americans resist death. We're terrified of it. We'll do anything to stop it from happening to a really crazy, unhealthy degree. And he just laughed. He's like, well, we will all die. We believe in Jesus. We will all be with him. And, and this is coming from a Sudanese man who'd been beaten in about five different countries, who'd been assaulted in ways I can't fathom. So here's the crazy part of it. We ask his dad, your son has cancer. What do you know of cancer? I know nothing. You know nothing? Yes, Sudanese people don't get cancer. Now, I'm not a doctor. I can't clarify that as a statement. But you've got a man who's coming from a culture and a country where they've suffered a ton into a country and a culture where you don't. And you know what's funny about that? And I use funny as a strange way, not as a humorous way. We all know people with cancer, do we not? We all suffer. It looks different in different places. But in every place, it's an opportunity for us to preach the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to testify that he's enough. Whether you're getting beaten for your faith somewhere else or your body is beating you down here. We testify that Jesus is enough And as Peter's writing this out, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. Peter's painted this picture for you that the lion is prowling and he's seeking for someone to devour. And guys, if we're going to suffer, put all of this together and what Peter writes is stay in the herd. Stay in community. And do that by being humble towards one another. Do that by exalting Jesus Christ that he is more than you. Do that by being watchful. Because Satan is on the move. In his last week, Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you as wheat. He wants to sift you as wheat too. Satan wants to tear us apart. He wants to isolate us. And especially when we're suffering, when we're struggling, and when we let down our defenses, we can isolate ourselves and think it's all about me. And friends, that comes from Satan. The call that Peter would have you hear is don't suffer alone. Ever. Don't suffer alone. That as he finishes out his letter, he's calling you into community. That if we're all going to suffer, and everyone around the world who's following Jesus, our brotherhood around the world, are suffering, don't do it by yourself. Be in community. Be in the church where you'll be encouraged and you'll be walked with. People will suffer with you. People will endure with you. And maybe in God's grace, he'll put some elders in your church who've been through some of the things you're going through, who can put an arm around you and say, I've been there. Let's suffer together. In verse 10, as he continues, he writes, and after you've suffered a little while, picture the shortness of life, by the way, and the reality that we'll suffer while we're here. 
After you've, been, after you've suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter writes, our suffering is so small that relative to eternity, that once we've been there a trillion years, bright shining as the sun, after we've suffered for a little while, the grace that is our hope that was promised to us in chapter 1, the grace that is our hope will be revealed that Christ will return and when He does, He will restore that which was torn apart. He will confirm that which was denied. He will strengthen that which has been weakened. And He will establish you. He will return. He is the great hope that's before us in chapter 1 and chapter 3 throughout this whole letter, this call that we will all suffer. Our hope is in Jesus, not in health. Not in acceptance. Our hope is Jesus. And in verse 11, to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To Him be the dominion. I don't want to rule. You don't want to rule. We want Jesus to rule. To Him, may He rule forever and ever. Amen. Then as a matter of grammar, He includes a postscript, which we'll comment about. 12 through 14 is a postscript. He writes, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Sylvanus, known to be Silas, he gets a nickname, who accompanied Peter on his second missionary journey, doing ministry with Peter, and now is delivering this letter to those churches in the northern part of Asia Minor. He writes this statement in verse 12. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What has he written? What's the true grace of God that he's writing about? Lean into that for a moment. That you might suffer, that Christ might be exalted. That's grace according to Peter. That we would have the glory to call on the name of Jesus Christ through anything that we'd walk through. That that's grace according to Peter. That we can exalt Jesus Christ in any and every situation. No matter how bad it gets. How high the creek rises. Or how crazy it ends up being. Peter says exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Three times he says set your mind on this. Be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to to struggle. Prepare yourself that Christ is enough. Stand firm in it. Be in community so that you're built up as one in chapter 2. Be in community so that in chapter 5 you've got men in your lives who are watching over you to take care of you, to point you to Jesus. Stand firm in it. We would suffer that we would endure suffering and even hardships, that Christ would be exalted 
and His name would be lifted high. Stand firm in it, Peter writes. Because it's coming to all of us. Let me pray. Father, as we've walked into this book, as we've walked into this letter, First Peter, that you used your, your son Peter to write, Father, there's so much of Peter's life that I love reading about. There's so much of his life as a disciple I'm, I'm humored by. And there's so much truth in what he writes. Father, Peter suffered. The disciples suffered. The early church suffered. The church today suffers. Father, nothing happens outside of your control, for you are our God, and you rule. Father, I have no idea what's going on the lives of the people in this room right now. Father, but I know there are some that are suffering. Father, will you give them the strength to see the sufficiency of your Son to carry them all the way through it? Father, that though we suffer, we could testify to the greatness of your Son, to what he accomplished at the cross, and to the great hope we have when he returns. Father, the greatest testimony the church has ever had is suffering. So, Father, I pray that as a church, you'd arm us. You'd prepare us. You'd set our mind towards the reality that you are enough. And that we'd stand firm in that. Oh, Father, there are folks here who are struggling. I pray that our elders would come around them, shepherd them. Father, that we would all walk through this Staying in community, not letting Satan pick off anyone. Jesus, you're enough. Your death and resurrection is enough. We look forward to a time when you would return to take us home, to restore us, to confirm us, to strengthen us, and to establish us. God, we love you so much. Amen.